Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome back to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. My guest host again this week is my good friend Matthew. Hello, everybody. Hello, Matthew. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double, and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Fresh, never frozen. That's true. On July 6, 2013, in the town of Lac-Magantic, Quebec, an unattended 73-car freight train carrying crude oil rolled down a grade and derailed downtown. Multiple tank cars exploded, resulting in a massive fire. More than 30 buildings in the core of the town were destroyed, and sadly, 47 people lost their lives. This is Dark Poutine, episode 172, La Train d'Enfer, the Lac Magantique Rail Disaster. A word of warning before we continue. In this episode, there are audio clips that contain language that is much saltier than a typical dark poutine episode. The content herein is recommended for mature audiences only. Lac Magantique is around 250 kilometers east of Montreal. According to the town's website and translated from French, Lac-Magantic thrives in the MRC du Granit, a few kilometers from the U.S. border and 50 kilometers from Mont-Magantic, where we find the most powerful astronomical observatory in eastern North America. The name Magantic comes from the Abenaki word Namsukanajik, which means place where the fish are held. However, the Abenakis were not the first to tread the soil of the region, since archaeological excavations detect that the indigenous populations were already circulating there more than 12,000 years ago. This represents the oldest known site of human occupation on Quebec territory. The first Megantiquois of French or Scottish-Canadian origin cleared the land there around 1850, but the historical event that marked the starting point for the expansion of the urban center of Megantique was the arrival of the railway in 1878. Lac Megantique has become over the years a regional service center related to education, health, and government administration. The Megantiquois benefit from a flourishing economy thanks to companies in particular wood processing. Lac Magantique is also an undisputed tourist hub because of its many renowned tourist establishments that invite you to discover fascinating universes, particularly in the fields of astronomy, granite, 
and wildlife. The railway has been an important part of Lac Megantique's economy. According to Balado de Couvert, translated from French, quote, It was in 1927 that the current station was erected in Lac Megantique. At that time, significant passenger and freight traffic passed through the Lac Megantique station. Residents also met there to watch military convoys pass through during the war. The station has always been a gathering place, end quote. On July 5th, 2013, at 10 minutes to 11 p.m., a Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Railway MMA train arrived at Nantes, Quebec, carrying 7.7 million liters of petroleum crude in 72 tank cars. The train's journey had begun in Newtown, North Dakota. The cars were destined for St. John, New Brunswick. The train was stopping for an eight-hour break on the hill around 11 kilometers above Lac Magantique before it would continue on the next morning at 7.30 a.m. with a different engineer at the helm. The lone engineer on the train that night, Thomas Tom Harding, went about parking the train for the evening. Harding shut down the four locomotives that were trailing the lead one. Harding applied seven handbrakes on seven different cars and conducted a handbrake effectiveness test to ensure that the train would hold in place on the 1.2% downhill grade. How Thomas Harding went about performing the brake test would be of interest later when investigators were looking into what turned out to be the many causes of the accident. Satisfied that the train was secure, Harding called the company office in Farnham, Quebec and spoke with rail traffic controller Richard R.J. Labrie in what sounded like a routine check-in after securing the train for the night. After the train was logged where Harding had parked it, Harding asked R.J. to call him a taxi to drive him into town so he could bed down in a hotel for the night. R.J. said he would, and the call disconnected. Harding then called the rail traffic controller in Bangor, Maine. That office controlled movements for the crews east of Lac Megantique. Harding indicated that he'd driven the train hard over the last leg of its journey to where he'd parked it. Here's an excerpt of a transcript of the call between Harding and the U.S.-based RTC. Harding explained what he had observed with engine 5017, the lead locomotive. Quote, This last little pull-up here from the bottom of the hill at 26, down at Scottstown, all the way up to here, she worked pretty damn hard. Once I got stopped here, I noticed when I got stopped here that she was smoking excessively, both black for a minute or so, and then she would go white for a bit, and then go back to black again. The RTC responded to Harding, stating, Well, you probably cleaned her out, Tom. Harding indicated he was still concerned that the smoke from the locomotive was alternating between black and white at that moment, and that he thought if he left it to sit, the train might cool down over the night until the next morning. The RTC agreed that they'd have a look to diagnose any issues the next day. When the taxicab arrived at around 11.30 p.m. to pick up Harding for the drive to his hotel, the cabbie noticed that the locomotive seemed to be smoking excessively and that drops of oil were landing on the cab's windshield. The cabbie asked whether it was safe to leave the train like that, and Harding assured him he'd spoken with rail traffic controllers about it and that he'd been okayed to head out and leave the train as it was. They drove off. Ten minutes later, a 911 call came into the Nance Fire Department. The locomotive was on fire. From a CBC News article on the events of that night, quote, At 11.31 on July 5, 2013, a man called from Highway 161 after seeing the Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic train on fire between Nance and Lac Magantique. The train has stopped, but there are flames rising above it. It's quite frightening said the 911 caller, end quote. Firefighters rushed to the scene, arriving at around 11.40 p.m. 
and used foam and water to attempt to extinguish the fire. They shut off the locomotive's fuel supply. They also moved the electrical breakers inside the cab to off position in keeping with railway instructions and were able to extinguish the fire having removed the fuel source from the blaze. The engine was shut down. The provincial police force, Cirete du Québec, or SQ, called the Farnham Rail Traffic Control to let the company know about the blaze aboard the train. Learning of the fire aboard Engine 5017, Labrie picked up the phone and called Tom Harding at his hotel at around 11.59 a.m. When Harding picked up, Labrie got right to it, asking about which of the locomotives that Harding had left running. Harding responded 5017, indicating it was the lead locomotive. As the railway recorded the phone calls and later released them, here's some audio of R.J. Labrie informing engineer Tom Harding of the fire aboard the train he'd just parked. Hello. Hi, Tom. Yes, sir. Sorry to bother you. No problem. Hey, uh, did you kill the units before leaving? Yes, four of them. Which one did you keep uh, running? 5017. The leader? Yes. Okay, apparently it, started, it went on fire. It went on fire. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the guy had problems with it. I reported it to Dave. Have you talked to Dave? No. Oh, okay. I told Dave that I worked it hard coming up there. She was smoking pretty good when I left her. Okay. Now now you're telling me she caught on fire? Yeah, she caught on fire. Okay. Is somebody up there to take care of it? Or? Yeah. Well, the, the, the fire, firemen, the firefighter were there. Yes. And apparently it's dead now. Oh, and uh, the, the 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 fire is uh, is all gone. It's extinguished. Okay. And uh, that's all I know about it. At 12:30, two firefighters concerned about the state of the train, even after extinguishing the fire aboard the engine, spoke to a track foreman, an MMA employee who had been dispatched to oversee the incident. The track foreman, who had no locomotive experience spoke with RTC at Farnham and reported that the fire had been put out. At 12.35 a.m., the track foreman told RTC at Farnham that the fire was extinguished, that all locomotives were shut down, and that the electrical breakers in the cab of the lead locomotive had been opened. Farnham RTC told the MMA track foreman to leave things as they were and that he could depart. The fire crew and the track foreman left the train at around 12.44 a.m., Farnham then informed RTC Bangor about the fire and that it had been in the smokestack of engine 5017. They spoke briefly about alternate plans for that engine in the morning after the fire. What none of the people attending the fire understood was that the lead locomotive, the only one that Harding had left running, had an air compressor that was supplying air to the locomotive's air brakes. With that locomotive shut down due to the fire on board, there was now no longer any supply of air to the air brakes. Over the next 14 minutes, the air brake reservoirs were depleted and the air bled out from the braking system, slowly decreasing the effectiveness of the brakes until finally, at approximately 12.58 a.m., the train began to slowly roll down the hill toward Lac Magantique while most of its 6,000 residents slept, unaware of the danger that was approaching. Just after 1 a.m., Jean-Luc Montimini, a volunteer firefighter with the Nantes Fire Department, was driving home on Highway 161 after attending, with the rest of his fire crew, on the call to put out the fire on Engine 5017. He was stopped at a level crossing by the flashing red lights and bell indicating an approaching train. There was no sign of a train, usually indicated by a train's whistle, and Montimini 
heard no sound of a train's engine. Thinking that something might be wrong with the signal, Montemini got out of his vehicle, thinking that he would cross the tracks and check for signs of a malfunction. At that moment, the train rushed by him, no engine running, no lights on, at a dangerous rate. He recognized this as the same train that had been on fire earlier. Montimini jumped back in his vehicle and raced back to the fire hall to tell his colleagues still at the station about what he had just seen. The unattended train was picking up speed. Only nine minutes after it had begun rolling, thanks only to gravity and the momentum of the heavy train, it was traveling at a speed of 40 kilometers per hour. Seven minutes after that, the train was flying down the grade at over 80 kilometers per hour. Only a minute later, at 1.15 a.m., the train derailed at the top speed it had reached, more than 100 kilometers per hour, at a curved section of track in the downtown area of Lac Magantique that was rated for trains going much slower, where the rails crossed Frontenac Street. Witnesses later recalled what they had seen and heard that evening just before the derailment. From an article written by David Crary of the Associated Press on July 13, 2013, quote, Gil Fluet, a 65-year-old retiree who used to work at a door-making factory, left the Musée Café just moments before the first explosion and saw the train go by. It was moving at a hellish speed. No lights, no signals, nothing at all, he said. There was no warning. It was a black blob that came out of nowhere. I realized they were oil tankers and that they were going to blow up, so I yelled that to my friends and I got out of there. He said, if we had stayed where we were, we would have been roasted. Those who were still in the pub, he said, had no chance, End quote. As the train crashed and accordioned, the cars smashed into each other. The 63 derailed oil tankers carrying volatile crude were damaged and some were broken open, releasing almost 6 million liters of petroleum very rapidly. Sparks from metal grinding on metal, coupled with the open air and all that fuel, almost immediately started a massive fire that began to rage and spread quickly, with flames reaching high into the sky over the small buildings in Lac Magantique's downtown. It created choking black smoke with intense heat, burning so hot that it could be felt almost two kilometers away. The explosion started right away, too. Initially, between four and six huge fireballs lit up the sky and woke the terrified residents of Lac Magantique. As the blazing oil flowed over the ground, it poured into the town's storm sewer and emerged as huge fires towering from other storm sewer drains, manholes, and even chimneys and basements of buildings in the area. Translated from French, a witness spoke to reporters in an Agence QMI news article. Quote, it was a sheet of burning oil that arrived, continued the witness. We were outside, the world in the bar. There must not be many who came out of there. There are plenty of two- or three-story buildings. We know people who jumped from the third floor to save their skin. End quote. The 911 call started immediately. Residents were reporting the derailment, fires, and multiple explosions that followed. Some people who were witnessing what they were seeing used their smartphones to record video of the catastrophic events. YouTube user Pierre Duquet compiled some of those videos and posted them under the title Tragédie Lac Magantique. Here are some clips of that video. Again, a reminder that the language in some of these audio clips is strong, both in English and in French. Even though the videos were shot at a safe distance from the fires, amid the explosions and bangs, you can hear the shrieking of the fire as it burned out of control. Fuck, man, this is absolutely... Just 
crisse mon cœur là, je crisse mon cœur. Oh mon dieu Il y a quelqu'un d'autre, Yannick. Je te tiens au courant, ok Vision d'apocalypse. Take a break right here. And we're back. So what are your thoughts so far? Mm. There's been explosions and this horrific fire. People in Lac Magantic don't know what the heck is going on. It, it sounds like it was just hell. Apocalypse, yeah, yeah. And, and that's what, the way one of the uh, eyewitnesses described yeah. it was l'apocalypse, la, yeah. and uh, and that's why I've titled the episode Train d'Enfer. Yeah, this is hitting me hard because I, mm -hmm. um, I was in Quebec all week, yeah. this week, and m where I work is just a short two-hour drive from this place, so mm -hmm. these beautiful little towns, like I, I'm feeling this one. Yeah, I'm so you know the locale. Yeah. And the type of people who are there. They're wonderful people. They're people There's of deep, people, salt of the earth. Deep culture, salt yeah. of the earth, but yeah. they're French, so I think the, French, the salt French of the earth to me are a little bit, I don't know, they're that je ne sais quoi. They're lovely people. I love it in this. They're a little spicier, man. Yes, I love this area, and, yeah. and this is hitting. Yeah, it's sad. Yeah. According to the TSB report on the disaster, the first fire rescue vehicle and the Cirete du Québec SQ arrived at the accident scene almost simultaneously at about 1.22 a.m. Seeing the scope of the fire, the town implemented its emergency response plan, which included assistance from nearby municipalities, including the Nance and St. Augustine de Wilburn fire departments. At 1.29 a.m., the SQ informed the Farnham RTC that there were explosions at Lac Magantique and asked them to send someone as soon as possible. At this point, RTC at Farnham believed that the train that Harding had engineered was still at Nance. The fire was massive and spreading quickly. It was clear the crews already there needed a lot more help. Calls were sent out to fire departments all over the province of Quebec and several counties in neighboring Maine. In total, more than 1,000 firefighters from 80 different municipalities participated in the response. To date, this is the largest fire response in recent Quebec history. From the TSB report written later, quote, At any time, approximately 150 firefighters were on site. Initial firefighting efforts focused on evacuating people and preventing further spread of the fire to nearby buildings and structures, end quote. First responders began evacuating at least 2,000 of the town's 6,000 residents who were endangered by the fire. Included among those was Thomas Harding, who called R.J. Labrie at RTC Farnham at 1.47 a.m. Police, who had identified Harding as a railway employee, wanted him to call and ask about the possibility of dangerous materials belonging to MMA in the rail yard. Harding told Labrie about a large part of downtown Lac Magantique being on fire asking whether their railroad had any fuel cars in the, rail in the rail yard there. 
Harding did not at any point seem to realize that it was the train he'd just left that had barreled down into the town and caused the destruction he was looking at. Labrie makes reference to a train that, quote, rolled down, but Harding seemed to think that the train was still in Nance. Here's some audio of the call between the two men. Again, some of the language is salty. Hey, RJ Tom here. List of emergency, the town of Mechanics on fire. Okay, do we have tankers in the yard anywhere? Tankers? Tankers, any kind of tankers of any kind. No, no, what, what's the problem? Is it with us? Everything's on fire from the church all the way down to the metro, from the river all the way to the railway tracks. From what I can see, RJ, the boxcars have all burnt in the yard, the ties, everything. Whatever's in the yard, rolling stock is now gone completely. Uh, is, it, is it the train that we are, we are run down? No, I, I, I had all of the police here. Uh, around me because they know I work for the railway. We got a loaded train up at Nance. It's okay. We got an empty fuel train up at Vashon. It's okay. Whatever okay. the yard is gone. Flames, RJ, are uh, 200 feet high. It's incredible. You can't believe it here. From the river right to the station. What the, the fuck station, happened? I don't know. I don't know. But everything, everything. Uh, I okay. got woke up uh, 20 minutes ago. Evacuate, evacuate right away. Okay. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's okay. incredible. Okay. We got, no, we got no tankers in the yard anywhere, right? Tankers? No, I don't think no. so. No. Okay, that's what I told them, and they're telling me yes. That's what's burning in the yard is is uh, propane and gas. Labrie let Harding know that there were no dangerous commodities of any kind belonging to MMA in the rail yard, or at least there weren't supposed to be. Starting at around 10 to 2 in the morning, there were a series of phone conversations within the MMA Railway Company attempting to determine the cause of the blaze. RTC Farnham began receiving reports of a runaway train heading into Lac Megantique just before the fire. The MMA track foreman was sent to Nance to see if the train headed by engine 5017 was still there. When he discovered it was missing, the foreman notified RTC Farnham. This call came at around 2.39 a.m. At 3.29 a.m., Tom Harding called RTC Farnham and spoke to R.J. Labrie again. At the beginning of the call, Harding gives an update of what he has observed regarding the ongoing efforts to fight the fire. But Labrie has bad news for Tom Harding. He informs him that it was in fact Harding's train that had caused the disaster now unfolding in Lac Magantique. Here's an audio clip. Again, we caution listeners about the language that follows. The audio as well had to be cleaned up considerably. Apologies for the quality. Okay, but uh, it's, it's worse than that, my friend. Why? It's, uh, it's your train that rolled up? No. Yes, sir. No, RJ. Yes, sir. Holy fuck. Fuck. Yes, sir. That's what I got. It was confirmed at uh, 2 30. So we just listened to that phone call of mm. Tom Harding yeah. finding out that it was his train oh, God. that caused the disaster in Lac Magantic, <laughs> and we got to hear his true reactions. Could you imagine just that? 
your bowels liquefying of of the realization. Like you can hear it in his voice. Yeah. Right. You can hear it in his voice and he doesn't even know like how bad it is yet. Right. Right. But you can, yeah, it's amazing that you have this recording because you don't hear this very often, but I, I've, I kind of feel for the guy. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, everybody has made a mistake at work. Oh yeah. You know, and, and, uh, um, unfortunately, this one had major consequences. Major consequences, yeah. The horror in Tom Harding's voice was palpable. Labrie then asked him how many brakes he'd applied. Harding answered that he'd used seven handbrakes, but clearly these had not been enough to hold the weight of the train when the air brakes bled out. The train had started rolling. Investigators would discover later that it was a false result from the brake test that had caused the train to roll away. From the inquiry held later on, quote, Railway rules require handbrakes alone to be capable of holding a train, and this must be verified by a test. That night, however, the locomotive air brakes were left on during the test, meaning the, bra- meaning the train was being held by a combination of handbrakes and air brakes. This gave the false impression that the handbrakes alone would hold the train. Again, from the inquiry report, quote, the pileup of tank cars combined with the large volume of burning petroleum crude oil made the firefighter's job extremely difficult. Despite the challenges of a large emergency response, was well coordinated and the fire departments effectively protected the site and ensured public safety after the derailment. Fire crews fought to get the blaze under control for the next two days and were able to call it extinguished on Sunday evening. At points, the intense heat turned water from their hoses to vapor, evaporating it even before it hit the fire. A local high school was converted into a Red Cross shelter, and 250 beds were installed there to house some of the displaced residents of Lac Megantique. Other aid organizations were offering help, and ways to donate were set up at various sites online. Prime Minister Stephen Harper visited on Sunday, referring to the area as appearing like a war zone. Many buildings were damaged, and at least 40 people were still missing. The recovery of bodies in the rubble began, but all that was left of a few were traces of their DNA, while five others were never found. The total death toll in the disaster was 47 people. 30 buildings, including irreplaceable heritage buildings, were destroyed utterly, and others were badly damaged. The town's economy was devastated as 115 businesses were destroyed, displaced, or rendered inaccessible. The music cafe was destroyed and three of its employees were among the dead or the missing. The town's mayor, Colette Rawal-Laroche, promised Lac Magantique would rise again from its literal ashes. She told the Montreal Gazette, quote, We will rebuild our town, but at the same time we have to accept it won't be the one we knew. Very old buildings, heritage and architecture all disappeared and at the beginning, no one realized the magnitude and now we are starting to understand the consequences, end quote. Townsfolk were enraged when MMA CEO Ed Burkhart came to town. He did not do the company many favors, enraging them even further with his rhetoric. A few major faux pas preceded his arrival in Lac Megantique. From Bruce Campbell's book, The Lac Megantique Rail Disaster, quote, Burkhart joked before arriving that he would need to wear a bulletproof vest, but had insisted he didn't want a public relations person to accompany him. The initial press statement was in English only. End quote. Quebec, as we know, is a French-speaking province. Burkhart gave a tone-deaf press conference to reporters in town. Here's a portion 
of a Global News TV report filed afterward with some of his audio. Edward Burkhart is head of the railway, but in Lac Megantic, he's public enemy number one. He arrived in town early this morning, hoping to meet with the mayor and tell this devastated community he's sorry. I understand their tragedy. I, I, uh, I feel personally absolutely rotten about it, but, uh, but what can you do at this point? That apology did little to satisfy people here. Put the uh, rope on, around his neck and hang himself. That comment, just a small measure of how high emotions are running here. Burkhart was not allowed to see the most devastated area, the so-called red zone, but he was questioned at length about who did what to the locomotive on that fateful night. At first, he blamed the firefighters, who put out a small blaze on the train up the tracks in Nantes. The locomotive had been tampered with. That is definitely true. And it was the fire people that tampered with it. After firefighters left the scene, a track foreman was called to check the train. And Burkhardt admits that was likely a mistake. The, the track man uh, was not qualified on locomotives. And what about engineer Tom Harding? He was the one who parked the cars there and left for the night following standard operating procedure. At first the company stood behind Harding, but not anymore. He's told us that he applied uh, 11 handbrakes and uh, uh, our general feeling is that that's not now, that that is not true. Initially, we took him at his word. While Burkhart was blaming others, people in this town say he should be taking full responsibility. Raymond Lafontaine lost his son and two daughters-in-law in the inferno. He wanted to meet Burkhart face to face, but was stopped by police. Let's stop the violins for him, Lafontaine says. Burkhart is responsible for his employees. Now, Burkhart is taking some responsibility. He's promising his company won't change crews or park trains near Lac Magansic ever again. Every railway in North America that I know of will park trains unmanned. Uh, I think that's probably come to a halt, or will come to a halt. It certainly has come to a halt on our railway. We're not going to do that anymore. We were following industry practice. Was the industry practice adequate? I would say not. Cold comfort for people in this town, crippled by a catastrophe. What are your thoughts? <laughs> you, you can see my face right now. Yeah, you but the look listen- like a cat's bum. <laughs> the listeners can't. What a super douche, man. Yeah. First of all, right this is a french-speaking community yeah and uh, you know he's a blabbing bullshit in english that right. nobody understands yeah there's no responsibility it's it's sort of like oh well we'll do better next time yeah horrible and what i find interesting is listening to the people yelling yeah. at him behind him i would be too and calling him a rat you know yeah. and and other people are you know the one gentleman says that the man should hang himself yeah so I mean I don't wish that on anyone. No, but, but, but this guy. Was, but that's an emotional reaction. This that guy. Somebody but is there's having. this guy is he's not coming across as giving a shit at all about the people of that town. No, he's not to me. I mean I don't know if he did or not, but he doesn't sound like it. It sounds to me, and this is just my opinion. He may be in super defensive mode, like okay, I am here to defend the company without thinking that there are forty-seven at that time, unknown, how many people are dead. Mm. You think a company that big would have actually got a 
PR, like to at least get them to say the right things. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like, you know, first of all, it should come from the heart. It should be honest, but there was this abs, it's just on, ugh, I don't know what to say. It's so bad. It is really bad. CNN later called Burkhart the most despised person in Canada. The MMA railway was done for. As well as the 47 deaths, the incident had resulted in an estimated $200 million in damage. MMA had only $25 million in liability insurance. The company declared bankruptcy and its assets were sold at auction. On May 12, 2014, the Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Railway was charged with 47 counts of criminal negligence. Engineer Thomas Harding, manager of train operations Jean Demaitre, and rail traffic controller Richard Labrie were arrested and appeared in Lac Magantique's court. Of the 79 rail cars, only seven brakes had been applied, where MMA guidelines indicate nine as a minimum and experts advise 15 brakes should have been used for the slope the train was on. No handbrakes had been applied on 72 of the cars. All three men, Harding, Labrie, and Demet, were charged with 47 counts of criminal negligence causing death. The penalty for conviction on each count carried with it a possible life sentence. The trial finally began on October 2, 2017 and lasted until mid-December. After the Crown finished, the defense did not offer any witnesses, believing the Crown had not proven the charges. Their gamble worked. In mid-January of 2018, the jury came back and acquitted the three men of criminal negligence causing death. Harding was too emotional to speak outside the courthouse, but R.J. Richard Labrie told Global News, quote, even though I never spoke, I always thought of you, Richard Labrie said, his voice cracking. I would like to say that Lac-Magantique residents, with what they had to go through, showed us a lot of courage and help and lots of resilience. End quote. Harding later spoke to the press at a lawyer's office in Sherbrooke. Here's some audio from that day as recorded by Global News. Tom Harding walked into a lawyer's office here in downtown Sherbrooke this afternoon. He appeared the way he always does, serious and stoic, but for the first time, he spoke. He read a prepared statement, first in French and then in English. He thanked the jury, his legal team, and his family for supporting him. But his first words were specifically for the friends and family of the 47 victims killed in the tragedy. I do not find the words sufficient to express my sympathies. I am deeply sorry for my part of responsibility in this tragedy. I assume this responsibility now, and I will always assume it. What are your thoughts on how he responded? I mean, he was he was outside with reporters on the day of his acquittal. Yeah. And he could not bring himself to talk to them. He wanted to. You could see that he wanted to. He walked up to the microphone. Yeah. He opened his mouth, nothing came out, and he just turned around and walked away. I, I think you got... Um... That's a real person who, mm -hmm. who truly felt horrible. Right. He fessed up, I, this is not the right word, he, he owned up to his part in it. Yeah. Right? But there are so many elements to this. It, you know the movie Final Destination? Yeah. Where like, you know, a pin drops and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. You know, it was just a series of events. And yep. this town, you know, people sitting in a pub, other people sleeping, somebody walking their dog probably. Yeah. No clue, no clue that this no. is going to happen to no. them, right? So 
things didn't go exactly well for him after that. And we'll get into that in a sec. Harding went back to work, but things went sideways. From a Canadian press article, quote, Harding returned to work for Central Maine and Quebec Railway, which took over from the defunct Montreal, Maine and Atlantic MMA, which operated the train involved in the derailment. Harding went on sick leave and was supposed to gradually return to work by July 5, 2018, but a week before that, on June 27, 2018, he received a letter of dismissal. The employer cited his involvement in the Lac-Megantic derailment and said that the relationship of trust had been broken. His firing was later found to be illegal by a court, and rather than return to work, Harding was given financial compensation of an undisclosed amount. The TSB concluded that 18 factors under six categories had contributed to the Lac-Megantic accident. Under the category of Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic Railway, contributing factors are 1. Not effectively managing risks. 2. SMS not fully implemented. 3. Weak safety culture. 4. Ineffective training and oversight on train securement. 5. No additional safety defenses. 6. Train left unattended on hill. Under the locomotive section, it says, 1. Mechanical problems not remedied. 2. Non-standard engine repair failure. 3. Locomotive engine fire. 4. Safety device not wired to initiate braking. Under tank cars, it says, breached tank cars and highly volatile crude oil. Contributing factors from Transport Canada were, quote, inadequate oversight of operational changes, limited follow-up on safety deficiencies, and ineffective SMS audit program. The derailment itself was caused by excessive train speed for the track, and train securement was cited as the last thing, insufficient handbrakes, improper handbrake test, and independent air brakes leaked off. The TSB made five recommendations. Recommendation number one, Transport Canada must take a more hands-on role when it comes to railway safety management systems, making sure not just that they exist, but they are working and that they are effective. Number two, Canada Railways must put in place additional physical defenses to prevent runaways. Number three, Emergency response assistant plans must be created when large volumes of liquid hydrocarbons like oil are shipped. 4. Railway companies should conduct strategic route planning and enhance train operations for all trains carrying dangerous goods. And 5. Enhanced protection standards must be put in place for Class 111 tank cars. The conclusion of the TSB report reads, quote, the tragedy in Lac-Megantic was not caused by one single person, action, or organization. Many factors played a role, and addressing the safety issues will take a concerted effort from regulators, railways, shippers, tank car manufacturers, and refiners in Canada and the United States. Although this investigation is complete, the TSB will continue to monitor the five recommendations and to report publicly on any progress or lack of progress until all of the safety deficiencies have been corrected. The town of Lac-Megantic itself took the lead to rebuild and revitalize their downtown after the disaster. From Lac-Megantic's website, quote, At the incentive of the city of Lac-Megantic, the downtown reconstruction office was created in the fall of 2015 as part of the Reinventing the City citizen participation approach. Citizens had identified its creation as a priority. 
They wanted an organization entirely dedicated to the reconstruction project acting in partnership with the various stakeholders, municipal council, citizens, developers, various stakeholders, etc. This is precisely the approach of the reconstruction office. The reconstruction office is therefore a team that listens to projects which accompanies developers and investors in their efforts to rebuild a city center. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 172, Le Train d'Enfer, The Lac Megantic Rail Disaster. So, Matthew, do you have any thoughts? I'm going back to Quebec a uh, week after this. Yep. And I was reading an article from 2019 in the New York Times mm-hmm. where the mayor, Julie Morin, I don't know if she's still the mayor, but she says that she doesn't want people to forget. Right. And uh, the re- residents told the journalist to um, uh, tell tell the world not to be not to overlook or forget. So I'm actually gonna drive down, rent a hotel room, and because it's I was researching, it's beautiful. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go stay. There you go. Yeah, take some pictures for us I of will. the uh, of the. There's I know there's a lot of memorials there. Yeah. Um, if you could, and then post them in sure the thing. new Yumber Yard. Yes. Our new Yumber Yard. We'll talk a 2. little 0. bit. 2.0. We'll talk a little bit more yeah, about I'll that. Yeah, I'll go. Do you want to come with me? I would love to go, but uh, I, I can't. Um, yeah, so I didn't address the victims specifically. I know they were addressed in one of the calls. Yeah. But um, reading a name of 47 victims. I was, when, when I knew we were doing this one, I was like, are we going to sit there and read all the names? Because in a way I want to. Yeah. But you couldn't do it justice in a show this short. And, and no. you know, I think um, I was actually a little bit worried about this show because until I read this article where they're saying, don't, don't forget us and come, right. come visit. I'm like, yeah. you know what? I had read that. So that's why we're so doing we've, the show. Okay. So, you know, I, I hope if anyone from there is listening to this, I, I hope you thought this was a good job and that we've done it with Karen. Yeah. Because it's uh, hard. Yeah, and, and I didn't want to get. There was a lot of awful, horrendous detail that don't need that it. I did not don't add into it. this show. No, don't need it because there were so many people that um, that died in such horrific ways of all ages and all you know shapes and sizes, yeah. kind of thing. And uh, it's horrendous. Yeah. This this disaster is one of those ones that. When it happened, I was just like, oh my God, because I come from a small town like that. So do what my brother and I were talking about this last night. Mm -hmm. You know, we come from a small town and like, I mean, it'd be just as horrible if it was in a big city, but this was like the entire town center. Like this could have been from where I'm from. We grew up, you know, three blocks from the train line as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. So we get it, right? And, and, and the, like, I can just, picture it sort of having come from a small town, it, it would just obliterate so much, you know? Yeah. yeah. And it's like I mentioned, um, in a small town like that, you either know or are related to somebody who lost their lives. For 100%, mm-hmm. right? 100%. Yeah. There's so, no so way. everybody, everybody in that town was affected. Yeah. yeah. Especially. Directly, directly. Yep. Yeah. Especially because it was the town center and yeah. the businesses that were lost. And, and then the train company only had $25 million worth of insurance. What the, like, how can a railway be allowed to operate? I think I have more insurance than that. <laughs> well, I don't, but. I should have for my dog, but <laughs> spent another $650 on medicine yesterday. Oh God. But yeah, that's just ridiculous. And mm-hmm. you know. I don't know if you know the region, Mike, but there's these 
like I actually miss like brick and stone buildings living here in Vancouver. Right. Like everything's sort of like wood or glass. Yeah. And there's beautiful buildings and so many of those are probably destroyed in the town. Well, that's what uh, I mentioned earlier on. Oh, is sorry. Yeah, it, you did. Like, these heritage buildings that have been there for years yeah. and were central to uh, tourism and remembering the history of the town. Yeah. All those things are gone. Yeah. Just gone. I would love to have some voicemails to get to right now, but we don't have any this week. Boo. Boo to all of you who I'm did not call. I'm publicly shaming you. <laughs> uh, you can leave us one, please do, at one 327 5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. If your call stands out or if you even make one, it'll probably end up on the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't promise them that. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it, it won't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we, uh, because the Facebook algorithms got us and we got zucked, the Yumber Yard, 10,000 people group, Gonzo, same thing happened to true crime all the time. And, Zucky fucky. Yeah, and Southern Fried True Crime. There were a few others that, so ridiculous. that got nuked, just gone without explanation. Yeah. Gonzo. And so... We've started a new Yumber Yard, and it's really easy to find. If you just type Yumber Yard into the search, uh, into the Facebook search, you will find it. So join us in the Yumber Yard on Facebook, Yumber Yard 2.0. You can see what Matthew brought for uh, lunch today, and it was a wonderful sushi and little cakes that he... I made into boobies. He made into boobies. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Um, I guess it's on to patrons. Patrons. So Patreon. Patreon this week, uh, we have from Flowery Branch, Georgia, Allison P. Flowery Branch. Flowery Branch, Georgia. What a great name for I know. I love these place names. Some of them are fantastic. Um, what does Allison P. do there in... Flowery Branch, Georgia. I have a theme today. Okay. She is a bowling tournament supervisor. Okay. And she trained under our, another one of our listeners, Michelle Ann. Okay. Who posted about her job and it looks so cool. Well, there you go. She's up in this like eagle's nest with a, with a telescope, making sure people are wearing the right shoes. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they don't cross the line when they're they're bowling, all that kind of. I, I grew up bowling. Yeah. Did you know my my mom won a, uh, a trophy once? Oh, really? And I, <laughs> this is really funny. Until I was about twelve years old, I thought when you won a trophy, the little person on the top, I thought they actually carved a likeness of you. Oh, because the woman bowling on my mom's bowling trophy had the same hair. Oh no! And I can remember how disappointing it was to find out <laughs> that it's not specifically not carved for you. Oh. Um, yeah, I liked bowling when I was growing up. I bowled at the, uh, oh my gosh, I can't even remember the name of the bowling lanes in Bridgewater. Ours was A and B bowling. Yeah. And there was always a big debate over with my brother and I on Saturday morning, if we would go bowling or watch Land of the Lost. <laughs> Land of, of the, the Lost. Lost. With the slee stacks. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, but we always went bowling. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And, uh, I was a special Olympics bowling coach for a while. Cool. I never got to go to the actual Special Olympics, but it, it was a local coach. thing. You weren't a good enough coach? My, my bowlers did really well. Then why didn't they make it? 
I wasn't there long enough, okay. I don't think. Fair enough. Yeah. It was only for a few months, but okay. yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it would be fun. Our next patron is Melissa. And I don't know where Melissa is from. Melissa is from the bowling capital of the world. Uh-oh. Which is Metro Detroit. Detroit is the bowling capital of the world just across the water from old Windsor, Ontario. And it's like very close to where I grew up. I think maybe that's why I was such a bowler as well. Oh, there you go. And so what does she do there in the bowling capital of the world? She is a person that individually carves the likenesses of people on top of the trophies. Well, there you have it. (laughs) I'm just going with that. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> well, thank you, Melissa. Next up, Thanks, we, Melissa. Next up, we have Vanessa Davies. Hello, Vanessa Davies. And she's from Kelowna, British Columbia. Kelowna. Yeah. And what does Vanessa do there in Kelowna? She's a bowling team namer. So she names the bowling teams. Yeah. N- you know, there's names like Bowl You Over and... Yep. I don't know. All three holes. Cereal Bowl. <laughs> All I can think of like... Men with balls. Oh boy. Yeah. Sorry, that was rude. (laughs) Men with bowls? Men with bowls. Oh, men with bowls. Did you know five pin bowling was invented in Canada? No. Mm. I've never five pin bowled. I've candle pin bowled and and, uh, ten pin, but yeah, never. Never five pin. Never five. It's fun. Next, we have, from Parts Unknown, Teresa Summers. Teresa. Where's Teresa from, Matthew? She's from Clapham Common. Okay. Which is in London. And what does this have to do with bowling? It's the first bowling lane in the United Kingdom was in Clapham Common. Well, there you go. And what does Teresa do? Bowling shoe designer. Oh, she designs bowling shoes. Yeah, she platforms, stilettos. Flats, all kinds, yeah. You know, have you ever heard the phrase, uh, when you're confused, I don't know whether to shit or go bowling? No, I have not. Yeah, well, there you go. You've heard it now. I think that's an East Coast thing. (laughs) I don't know if it is. (laughs) I don't know whether to shit or go bowling. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. So, well, thank you, Teresa. Next up, we have Anne-Marie Gallucci, and she's from Burlington, Vermont. And, and oh. what does she do there in Burlington, Vermont, that has to do with bowling, I'm sure? <laughs> I actually, I did a bowling one a couple of weeks ago, but I'm, I want to go bowling, Mike. Uh, let's go bowling. Maybe we should once... Uh... She polishes the pins. Yeah. Every, oh. Everyone, like, because of that movie, gets excited about the ball polishing, but she's a pin polisher. Oh, the movie me- being... Uh, that one. The Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski. Yeah. Yeah. So she polishes pins. Yeah. I was going to be disgusting just now about pin <laughs> polishing, but I've decided against it. I did not mean it that way. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, dear and, listeners, that and, Mike brought us down. Yeah, Anna Marie. Yeah, he, do, he doesn't mean it. <laughs> uh, next up, we have Kelsey Walker, and she is from Santa Monica, California. Santa Monica Boulevard. Exactly. So... <laughs> What does Kelsey do there in Santa Monica? And I'm sure it may be something to do with bowling. It might have something to do with bowling. Yep. She actually... Okay. Uh, it does the shoes. You know that person that does the shoes? Oh, sprays the spray in the shoes. Yeah. And then gives them to you. Yeah. And then takes them back. And if she doesn't like somebody, 
Yeah. Like that guy from the rail, rail company. The, you should give them one size too small. You should put super glue in it. <laughs> I think making them too small would be good too. Yeah. And with so, glue. Here you go, super douche. <laughs> yeah. That guy deserves it. Mm. Cherish Bar is from Parts Unknown. Where's Cherish from? Is her last name Bar? It is Bar. She works at the bar in the bowling lane. Yeah. But why, why do bowling lanes have bars? I don't know. Like it, it. Because you don't want to be drunk in bowling because if you fall down or. But uh, so many people are often drunk in bowling. Right. Where's Cherish from though? What city or town or country or She's place? from Kimberly, BC. Oh, okay. That's nice. Yeah. Kimberly's a nice place. I wonder, I wonder why they named it after somebody's first name, not last. I don't know. Maybe Kimberly is a last name. Or a very special girl named Kimberly. We, we, could, we could look it up, but we won't. <laughs> no. Next up we have from Oak Bank, Manitoba, Catherine Hine. Hello, Catherine Hine. Hello, Catherine. What does Catherine do there? Did you know that Manitoba has the world's longest bowling lanes? I didn't know that. Yeah, because it's so flat that you can just keep going. Oh, yeah. That's like uh, that old joke about what, what do people on the prairies do for entertainment? What? Watch the dog run away for three days. I'm running out of bowling uh, bowling stories here. Okay. Well, you could just make something else up. I think that she uh, works at the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. Wow. Is that in Manitoba? It is. Oh. It was the first uh, national museum mm-hmm. not in Ottawa. Well, there you go. Yes. I wonder why they put it in Manitoba. Because there was a gentleman uh, from Winnipeg who forked up the original $200 million for it. There you have it. It was first going to be a Holocaust museum, and then uh, they expanded it to be a human rights museum. I like that idea, too. Yeah. Have you been? Nope, I haven't. I've been to Winnipeg, but the next time I go, I am going to go to that. It was in the news for some bad things last year, but it's a really good place with a lot of good people. Yeah. Yep. Have been there. Uh, Laurel, no, I'm, I don't didn't mean Winnipeg. I meant I meant the the museum. Yeah. Oh, you can look it up. Um, but no, Winnipeg's great. The Forks, lovely yep. to hang out in the Forks. You can skate there. Oh, cool! In in the winter time, and they get students to design um, warming huts all along the river. I need a good warming. Yeah, hut. but they're all these like cool, cool designs. It's awesome. Oh, and we have to pause because the Amazon driver needs help. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. From Oak Bank. Oak Bank. Laura Williams is our next patron. Laura. And she is, she is from the place where I was born, Halifax, Nova Scotia. You're Hall- from Nova Scotia. Yes, I am. Cool. Because <laughs> you, you have had me in New Brunswick. I always mix it up with New Newfoundland, Brunswick. Newfoundland, PEI. PEI. Prince Edward. Oh, I want to make a, a, an announcement here. Yes. To all the listeners, Mike has yet to give me a free T-shirt. Well, that's because you didn't ask for one. <laughs> so I'm going to send Matthew some swag. Of course I am. I don't even have dark routine swag. Well, you can have anything you want. Can I have your new HP Lovecraft book that you got just delivered? We had to stop recording because Mike got a delivery and it's the complete works of HP Lovecraft. And it's really heavy, It's too. a beautiful book with a big octopus on the front. Yeah. <laughs> No, you may not have that because okay. I haven't read it yet. But thank you to Laura Williams from Halifax. What does Laura do with her time? Laura is a bowling alley nurse. 
Well, she's a nurse at the bowling. Yes. So she removes splinters, lots of splinters. Splinters, broken toes, mm. you know, um, yeah. alcohol poisoning. Yeah. 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 So in keeping with she, our theme. It's a very important job. Well, good for you, Laura. I didn't know that there were any bowling alleys still in Halifax, but I'm probably wrong. Do you remember bowling for dollars? I do. Do you know why it existed? No, I don't. Canadian content rules. <laughs> I think that's why this show exists. <laughs> this one? <laughs> this particular show. Is there a Canadian content rule for podcasts? Uh, there's none, none for podcasts, but that's coming. Yeah. So yeah. this new bill that uh, is being passed through Parliament... I'm sure it's going to have some sweeping uh, effects on on things. So I'm just a bill on Parliament Hill. Exactly. But anyway. So thank you to Laura for nursing people in. Thank you. And thank you for your generous donation. Thank you. Next up, we have Matty Murphy from Kent, Washington, just over the border. Matty Murphy. Yeah. What does Matty do? I, I, want, an, I want enough Matty's the given name. Because my grandmother used to call me Maddie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maddie. Yeah. Maddie. Maddie, M-A-T-T-I-E. That's how it's spelled Oh, M-A-T, okay, I-E. Yeah. Okay, versus Y. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're Maddie with a Y. Maddie Moo Moo. Is that what your grandmother called you? She used to call me Maddie Moo Moo Pumpkin Poo Poo. Of course. (laughs) Of course, that's how it went. What does Maddie... Do there in Matty is actually a bowling alley owner. Oh, she owns a bowling owns, alley. Owns uh, not just one, like an entire chain. Oh, she's like a chain owner of like the, the, the entire Pacific South, uh, Pacific Southwest, Pacific Northwest. Is it the sticks and balls chain? It is. <laughs> oh, well. How about that? Good for you, Maddie. Yeah, Empire. Well, yeah, Empire is right. Uh, that's it for patrons. Next, we have our donut money donors and our large, a large, a bit of a large donation from our friend Denise Sakaki. Denise! She's from Duval, Washington. Duval. I think it's a, like a suburb of Seattle. When I saw that, that uh, I was just saying to you, I'd love to hang out with Denise. She's great. She's, I have hung she, out with Denise. Have you? Yes, I have. Oh, I want to meet her in person. Uh, well, when I'm the your number one opens, fan, Denise. When the border opens, we'll probably go back to Seattle for a little bit of a meetup because yeah. we should. It's t- it's it's over overdue time for us to cross that border. Denise, thank you. Yeah, she says, "LOL, I just figured out how to add a message in PayPal. Love you guys. Hugs to all. A backlog of DP episodes will be powering my long plane ride to Maine." Well, wow. she's going over. The, uh, yeah, she's going to Maine for some Say reason. Say hi to Jessica for me. Say hi to that. I'm not going to give her a job because she's just Denise. Denise, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. Lobster roll, baby. <laughs> That's what she says. Lobster. 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 I got a lobster right here on my arm. Denise, tell us why you're going to Maine. Yeah, that's a good idea. She should tell us. Yes. Did I ever tell you? So there was this uh, guy who used to make um, sculptures out of car parts, like all the different little mechanical parts. So he would make a sculpture of a little man made with a radiator chest and- Sounds horrible. Uh, and and like shock, shock absorber legs and arms and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they did uh, a CBC, uh, did a documentary about- a bunch of artists in the area and he was one of them. 
And he had this fake lobster that he had made out of car parts. And he, he just looks at the camera and he says, oh, look at his lobster. He's coming to get you. <laughs> <laughs> the lobster's coming to get you. That's funny. That art sounds horrible though. It, it, he put it out like it would stand out outside his, his shop. Yeah. Oh, it's, he had a shop. Yeah. Well, because he was a mechanic. Ah. So he's a mechanic and a creative okay. guy. Okay. Okay. Well, that that's actually okay then. Yeah. I thought it was just some dude that had nothing to do with cars doing it. But. No, no. He was a mechanic okay. as well. Sorry. But uh, the lobster's coming the to lobster's get you. The lobster's coming to get you. <laughs> you should hold your arm up when you say that. The lobster <laughs> is coming to get you. Mike has a big lobster tattoo. I do. Arm. I have a big blue lobster. And blue lobsters are rare. Yeah. Like me. What's rarer than a blue lobster? What's rarer than a blue lobster? I don't know. Are there white ones? Like the albino ones? I don't know if there are. I'd have to look that up. Hmm. And our friend Irene Briand is back. She says, for donuts and beverage for the humans and a treat for Steve. Thank you, Irene. Thank you, Irene. Much appreciated. Very. Um, thank you to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com. For show notes and other cool stuff, please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everybody. Then the lobster is coming to get you. showcase they call me the christchurch carver based on the international bestseller this trademark souvenir can't stop thinking about the apple usually he eats it i've got a copycat on my hands i know who you are joe i know what you do you have two days to find a copycat this is way harder to make sense of when you didn't do it dark city the cleaner all new wednesdays on showcase stream on stack tv